Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. My guest this week has such an eventful life that it's not surprising that his book has already been optioned for a TV series. Gianni Russo is the author of the new book, Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob. Film lovers will recognize Gianni Russo from his role as Carlo Rizzi in Coppola's The Godfather. He was the wife-beating son-in-law of Don Corleone, who sets up his wife's brother Sonny for a hit. But the thing about Gianni Russo was that when he got the part of Carlo in The Godfather, he was a 25-year-old real-life mobster with no acting experience. And his real life surpasses that of any character in the iconic movie. I mean, Frank Sinatra is godfather to his son, Luciano. Now at 77, Gianni Russo, together with his co-writer, Patrick Picciarelli, who's a retired NYPD lieutenant, has written a book about his larger-than-life story. I talked to Mr. Russo about his book and about everything from his childhood in Little Italy, how being struck by polio at the age of six changed his life forever, how mafia boss Frank Costello took him under his wing at age 12, and what it was like working for him. We talk about the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination and how he got the role in The Godfather through his connections and how that film even saved his life when he was threatened by Pablo Escobar and so much more. The book has been optioned by green book writer Nick Vallelonga, and the plan is to make it into a 10-part series. Here is my conversation with Gianni Russo. Thank you so much for joining me here today. It's my pleasure and honor, my darling. I love Stockholm, you know. Oh, you do? Have you been here? Oh, my God, yes. Of course. That's great. Yeah, I, I went to my friend Ugo Bufa, who's basically a celebrity of Stockholm, He's passed on since then, but I'm still good friends with his daughters, and and uh, I stay in touch with them. And and I have a godson over there. Oh, Hendrick. nice! I used to go to uh, the club over there that the uh, I think he was the the Duke or the Baron owned. I mean, who, you know the club in town. Mm, I'm sure downstairs a private club. He had his own like club there. I, I don't yeah. get out that much as you do. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm out all the time. <laughs> At 77, it's insane that I'm still doing what I do. Well, you have this terrific book that you've written with Patrick Picciarelli. De Niro has written a blurb. Gay Talese has written a blurb. It's selling like crazy and making headlines. Did you ever have any fears writing it? Because you really get into detail, not just about sort of the your mob life, but also about Hollywood and gossip and all that. Well, you know, I decided to uh, write this when I was like 75. I wrote it, or I've been writing it for a while, but at 75, I thought I'd release it. And it took about a year to go through legal, not realizing how they had the, the publishers themselves wanted to vet what I was saying because they were afraid of lawsuits. And so basically everything that's in that book has been... Uh, vetted by top attorneys from Macmillan in London and St. And Martin's Press in the, in the United States. Because everybody thinks these, so, these stories are so far-fetched. How could this guy have done all this? <laughs> I, I never worry about anything. I mean, if you, you, you read my life story, do you think I worry about anything? No, <laughs> what, I've, what I've survived is, is no one can. Well, let me take you back then to this amazing life that you've lived. You grew up on Mulberry Street, right? Tell me a little bit about your parents and life in Little Italy. 
Well, mate, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because my life in Little Italy is still going on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going there this weekend again. I, I, I live on 61st Street in Manhattan, and I use it as a walk. I walk about four or five miles a day. So I walk down there. You know, I just love being in uh, my area, my neighborhood, just to reminisce. And so uh, my norm, my early life, was a very normal life as far as a kid, you know. I left my normal life at six and a half years of age. I remember it well, March 7th, 1949. And so the the real little life that I had for that short time with my grandparents and my mother and just a normal Italian-American living in Little Italy was phenomenal. I knew nothing but that block for the first six years of my life. Because what you're alluding to is when you were six years old, you were struck down with polio and taken to, to Bellevue Hospital, which is in the incredibly difficult years in your life. Because what you write in the book is that no one came to visit you. No one was allowed in, not even a wave from your family. That must have been absolutely horrible. Well, it, it was more than that because, you know, it's uh, it was a time before television, before all these gadgets and games and pads that all, all the kids of today carry around. So basically all I had was just to sit there and lay in a bed. And I did that for the first two years of being there. But, you know, to be taken away from your your, your sisters and your family and the neighborhood at such a young age, it was devastating to me at first. It's and if it wasn't for Dolores, the candy stripe, which basically I I dedicated a lot of my book to because she was so instrumental in my survival. An incredible nurse that you had, who really well, you grew up with her. Yeah, and then you know it was funny because I talk about her a lot, and the the thing is that you know when I got there. She was a candy striper. By the time I left, she was RN. <laughs> if it wasn't for her, I don't know. And then the, the gift she gave me on my birthday, my seventh birthday, and that would have, I would have been there already four or five months, and alone, as you pointed out. But the gift she gave me was a transistor radio. And at that time, I didn't. I mean, I, I I didn't even hear Frank Sinatra to be honest with you. At seven, who does? Right. Because I w- I wasn't into that. You know, I'm, I'm sitting listening to Mario Alonso and Jerry Vale at that time. All the Italian singers, not that Sinatra's not Italian, but he, uh, not that type of music. So when I found out that that day, on my birthday when I was alone, that here they're talking about this Italian American from Hoboken, New Jersey. Basically the same upbringing that I had only in New Jersey. And he gave me great hope because I share the same birthday. And I had the pleasure of meeting him soon after because of Frank Costello owning the Copa. And that relationship went on until he died. In fact, he baptized my last son, Luciano. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that most people probably wouldn't be able to endure. But, you know, I got an awful lot out of my life. Fortunately, I still am. You know, it's, it's, it's a crazy upbringing. I don't know how many people could, would have survived it. No. That's a rather naive question, maybe. But were, was your family not even allowed to sort of wave through a window or, or anything like that? Well, you know, I don't know that because they didn't come. 
Hmm. And I don't know how, what, how deep I was in on the floor. I mean, it was, it was a terrible epidemic. People were dying. I mean, I watched 27 kids die just oh my in God. my little ward alone. You know, it, it, death is so final and devastating for a young person. And I was an altar boy. I was going to church every day with my grandmother. And my, my whole family is very religious. And so I, I was confused because I didn't know what I did. Being a Catholic boy, I wanted to know why I was being punished like this. And, and as you know, you read the book, when they first had the first vaccine, vaccine that they were testing that Jonas Salk, mm-hmm. which the world knows now about the Salk vaccine, they, I didn't get it. And again, I was so like, why? And thank God I didn't because the first batch only escalated the virus and most of those kids died immediately. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't change a day of my life because I am so blessed in what all I have in my life now. You know, and I, I don't know if I, well, I didn't mention it in the book for obvious reasons, but I have nine sons, two daughters, and nine grandchildren. Right. So, I mean, I, I have such a great family and still going on. I'm, I'm doing like six projects right now. It's ridiculous. But when you, when you finally got out, um, you didn't go back to your family, right? What happened? Well, I was just so bitter because mm-hmm. I, I know myself now as I reflect on it. I mean, you, you couldn't take a kid away from me. I mean, I, I would find a way. I mean, I just don't understand it. And I still don't. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I was raised and I always respect them. In fact, I bought them a house when I was 16 years old on Staten Island. Didn't let them know I bought it. I just told the builder to tell them they won it in the lottery. And I took care of them indirectly just because that's what I thought, you know, they're my mother and father, shame on them. So, but, uh, and I'm glad I did actually, but uh, no, I never went back and Frank Costello replaced anybody that could be my father. And he was so generous to me and I was with him from, you know, 12 and a half years of age. Which would have been in, in the, about twenty years I was with this guy. Yeah, I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm gonna ask you about him now because you met him at that when you got out of of the ward. You were you started selling pens. You 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 were incredibly smart kid because you started your own business and you were selling pens all up and down New York. And that's when you met Frank Costello. Who was he? Well, Frank Costello at that time, uh, he had so many nicknames. He was the ambassador, uh, but he was. I mean, he, he is one of the the three people that Mario Puzo wrote about in The Godfather. How ironic is that? Because one was Joe, Joe Pafacci, who had the oil, oil uh, Genco Olive Oil Company. Mm-hmm. Frank Costello, when they reference, you have all the politicians and government in your pocket. He did. And then the humble Don Corleone was fashioned after Carlo Gambino, who also took care of me. So, you know, to me, it's, it's like life imitating life with me getting to know these people and then playing them in a movie and meeting them in a, in a fictitious character also. And, and what did you end up doing for him as a young kid there in the beginning? In the beginning, I was just running messengers. He didn't want me. He, I, I didn't realize how involved he was with my uncle. And my uncle was in, in instrumental in bringing him to America in 1919. 
and he was just about 18 years of age at that time, but he was already involved with the mob in Sicily. So they sent him and Charlie Luciano and Carlo Gambino to New York to organize what was called the Matarano Gang. One, one man had controlled New York City, and they, they wound up uh, killing him and creating which is known as the five families, which is still in existence. But, uh, so my, my background in Sicily and the mob goes so far back, right? Five, four or five generations. So and that's why I gained the respect. And then he just, I was just running messages for him until I was like 14 or 15. And then we got involved with, you know, the Kennedy ele- elections and all of that and just kept on going. And then because of my relationship with everybody I met, during that era, and then when Frank died in 73, I was already involved with the Vatican and uh, international money. That uh, that's I kept doing money stuff, and I still am. It's funny is that we, you know, here I am still in the same business basically, but on a bigger scale. Of course, but there's a great um, story in the book about how when you were or just, I think, 12, 13, you really impressed him in, in a certain way because he kept touching your, sto- your shoulder. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, I didn't realize that. You know, uh, every time he would come down, he, I, I used to stand in front of the Sherry Netherlands on 5th Avenue and 59th Street, which is a great corner to be at the Plaza Hotels on the other side. So all the affluent people of New York, even that lived on 5th Avenue, would pass me or the guest of the hotel. And that's where you would be selling pens, right? And that's where I'd be selling pens. And when I was a young boy, I was a good-looking kid, and people felt sorry for me. And my whole left side of my body, most of it still was, you know, dwarfed and deformed. So I used it. And uh, he'd come every day walking down the block and go into the Sherry Netherlands to get a shoe shine. This was his daily routine. And the man was groomed impeccably. And uh, he would never take a pen. He'd always touch my left shoulder and give me words of wisdom or something of, of the day and, and walk on. And it wasn't until years, about a year maybe, that I, I, I was coming out of church, Precious Blood Church, down in Little Italy, because I was living in Magnati's Bakery at that time, sleeping on the flower bags and getting exercise by mixing dough. Wow. And... Uh, I saw a Logorn, these horns that a lot of Italians wear, superstitious around their neck. You see them most of the time, they're red, or if you got a lot of money, they're made in gold. But one day, and the store is still there next to Ferrara's Bakery Shop on Grand Street. Is that amazing? Wow, that's amazing. But that's, I mean, that neighborhood, that's why I go down there. I just sit in the street cafes and just reminisce. I mean, <laughs> I am so blessed. And, you know, so... I asked why this one Lagorn had a hunchback on it. And he said, well, Sicilians are very superstitious. And they feel if they touch a cripple, it gives them luck. Well, I really, after this friendship that this man was so nice to me, I was really upset because I thought the guy liked me. And here he's using me as as a, you know. As a good luck charm. So you realize Frank Costello is, is touching your shoulder for luck. Right. And I thought he really liked me. Not that he didn't, but why are you doing that to me? So I, I don't know where I, you know, well, I, we, we, we will not give away how I get out of the hospital. 
but I've always had this inner sense of things. Right. And uh, I was at the train station, the end train, which I still take to get down there. It's so crazy. And there was a, a person selling these rabbit foots for luck, you know, these keychains. And, and they, so they had some obnoxious colors like turquoise and <laughs> pink. So I bought him a turquoise one and I put it in my pocket. So the next day when he's coming, he goes to reach my shoulder and I pull away. And he goes to reach my shoulder and I pull away. So what are you doing? And I, I, I let him have it in my own way and, you know, as a 13-year-old kid or approaching 13. And he looked at me and said, you know who I am? I said, I don't care who you are. Said, You're not using me as a good luck charm. I thought you liked me. And the guy looked at me. Then he looked at who I thought was his friend, was his bodyguard, Blackie. And he said, you believe this kid? And that's when he asked me my name. And I told him, that's when he said to me, then who's Angelo Russo to you? Right. I said, that's my great uncle. He said, when did you see him last? I said, well, this is a quiz show. <laughs> so he, because <laughs> I had this attitude. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, if you know my uncle, he was hung in 1947. How would I see him? And then he realized I really am the guy. He, were he was testing you. And did you give him the yeah. rabbit foot? Rabbit's foot? What, what did you Oh, say? yeah. He already handed it to him. Yeah. And he laughed. He handed, he handed it to uh, Blackie. But, uh, and from that day on, he says, you don't do this. And, he t and, and right after that, he, he said, Blackie, take your cigar box. I used to have a little wooden cigar box that I kept my pens and my money in. Mm-hmm. And he said, take my cigar box. He says, you're not taking my cigar box. And he gave me three $100 bills. Wow. For about $15 worth of pens. And that was it. Did you realize at that age sort of what the, what the mob, you know, sort of the, the underbelly of what the mob was doing and, and, and what you were in on sort of? Well, basically the mob to us was a good thing. Even the mob early, early on, you know, was protecting the immigrants from being taken advantage of. And I remember, I remember one day he wanted to let me know that, you know, what he's doing or what they're doing and represent was a necessity. And I remember, well, like yesterday, in fact, I had the ad. He took out an ad that he kept in his pocket from the New York Times when they were digging the reservoir in Central Park and they listed the categories of employment and the last person below Irish and below African-Americans and everything else were the WAPs without papers, they called them. And these were Italian immigrants that just wanted to come to America and they had the lowest pay scale I think we we're like 10 cents an hour or something. And he said, this is why we had to come here and organize the unions and everything else. But then we all know it got out of hand. Mm -hmm. But uh, the original reason was a good reason. So to answer your question, I thought it was a great organization at the time. Mm -hmm. so, but uh, obviously where it is today, which it really is that strong any longer as it was in so many gangs throughout the world now, the, the Russians and the uh, Albanians. I, I mean, there's so many categories. And it's not what it used to be. Even, even the Italians, they're, they're, not, they're not respectful anymore. They're just in it for the money.
But you did, you do say a thing in, in the book, you say, dead guys don't pay, scared guys do. Does that mean that you, you tended to scare people more? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, 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 I mean, I could talk about it openly. Anybody that I killed was either a pedophile, a drug dealer, and I'm very religious. And I, you know, I had this conversation with, uh, now he's the Saint, Saint John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And while he was alive, I used to go to the Vatican a lot, and I was introduced to him. And I even traveled with him when he came to America. And he was wanted to know how we can get people back to the church. And I said, you have to reform it. And he knew my history. And he said, how do you justify your life? I said, I think I'm a disciple of the Lord. And he looked at me. He said, how do you figure that out? I said, the only people I've ever heard were people who were hurting other people. So I was doing God's work. And it took him off balance. And that was the end of it. He never brought it up again. And to me, that's how I justify it. After a few, I mean, when the, when the Godfather, when you started hearing about this movie, um, you were doing pretty well. I mean, you had money. Oh, my you God, had, yeah. You had a career. Um, but you weren't acting. Why was this something you wanted to do? Well, my ego, which I still have a tremendous ego, I wanted <laughs> to I wanted to be a movie star. You know, it was a great life. I thought, you know, well, the movies at that time were even more glamorous than they are now. No, so so what happened was, at, you know, I just, you know, being at the Copa, which uh, Frank Costello owned, I was able to meet, you know, Frank Sinatra and all the big stars. And I was a teenager. And I remember the conversation I had with Frank when I was like 14, letting him know how he saved my life. And he said, how'd I do that? And I told him the story about the transistor radio. And that was the first time I saw Frank Sinatra cry. He cried. And the second time was many years later, I was in his audience and he did his first show at Caesar's Palace. And at the end of the first show, before his last song, he asked the audience to have a moment of silence because his mother's plane was missing. It was his plane. He sent it back for her because she was late and it went down and they didn't know whether she was alive or not when he first went on. And he asked the audience to pray because his mother was missing. And then soon after that, he found out that she was dead. And I was with him then, and he was crying again. But other than that, Frank Sinatra was not that kind of a guy. And so uh, I got to know him that well. But uh, so it, it really, he was very touched by my story and how I got out of there. And, and then my association, because he asked me, why did they call you the kid? I said, well, Mr. C gave me the name. He said, I'll never ask you that again. <laughs> <laughs> the respect that, you know, Mr. Costello had in the world was amazing. And I, I and fortunate because of him and during the, uh, you know, the election or trying to get John Kennedy elected as president, I met every mover and shaker in this country. Every, you know, union people, Jimmy Hoffa, everybody, because they needed all the votes because Joe Kennedy asked the mob to help his son become a president. And they did that, but he promised them they would invade Cuba and give them back their casinos. So it was a win-win for a lot of people. 
But that never happened because he made the mistake of making his brother, Robert Kennedy, attorney general. And he went after all his father's friends. And that was the demise of the Kennedys. And after the Kennedy assassination, you were sent a couple years to Europe. Um, is, was that to, for protection? Well, yeah. Now, even as we sit now, you know, most people don't know this, but after that period, in the next few weeks, they killed off 73 more people. And one is still an open case in New York, a very high profile journalist called Dorothy Kilgallen mm -hmm. was dating a mobster and they felt she overheard too much once that the assassination was accomplished. So they killed her and she was very high profile. People to today don't know who or why. So did they sent you for, uh, for Frank sent you for protection because you had heard something? That was Costello's idea. Frank sent me to, to Europe that day. That morning, I was on the Independence. In fact, I was going under the Verrazano Bridge here in New York as you leave the ports of New York. And they, they mentioned that the president's been shot. He wasn't dead yet. And then I put two and two together that this is the mission I was on. I thought it was, I actually thought they were going to kill Robert Kennedy because he was the one that was, you know, creating all the problems with the mob. But they killed John, obviously. Well, was this because you knew something or, or, or you had, did you have too much information? Was it protecting you for something you had seen? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was associated with the three shooters and I brought the last envelope to Carlos Masalas. Marcelo in, in New Orleans. And when I was there, I was going to go to the restroom. I just flew in to give him an envelope and a message from Mr. C. And I was supposed to take a message back. And when I went to the restroom, there was somebody in there. I waited. And when I came out, I bumped into the guy, not realizing who he was until the next day. When I was on the ship, there came a telex. And it was a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's who it was. And that's who it was. He was one of the shooters. And the other two shooters, I knew one from Chicago, Johnny Roselli. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was exactly for that reason. They wanted nobody that had anything to do with it alive. This was a big deal because with the deal they made with John Kennedy, he was going to stay in for eight years. And then they groomed Lyndon Bain Johnson for the next eight years. You know, they had Nixon... I mean, when you look at the presidents, the mob controlled in, in America, it's ridiculous. So getting back to The Godfather, because this also was happening before. All this had happened in your life. And, and then you wanted to be in this movie, this movie that everyone was talking about. How did you get this role as a non-actor? <laughs> well, the thing was, I, I started hearing about the news about Joe Colombo who was one of the families here, the Colombo families in New York. And I knew Joe and he was protesting the book and how it, you know, detected Italians, Americans as being gangsters and all that, which they were. <laughs> so I, I know, I knew enough about the mob. It's always about money. So what I did, I went to see Joe. I flew in from, I was in Vegas at the time and he, he was carrying on, and picketing the FBI buildings in New York. I mean, the guy's nuts. So I talked to Joe. I said, Joe, 
you're selling a buck a button. He was selling these little lapel pins for a dollar to raise money to finance the Anti-Defamation League for the Italians. So I said, you know, why don't we meet with Paramount and take out what you don't like? Because there's a lot of good points about the book, and it shows the, the life the way it is. And you could make a lot of money. And once I said a lot of money, that, that sparked his interest. Because <laughs> I know these guys. He said, well, how can we make money? I said, well, why don't we meet with them? And he had a young, brilliant attorney at the time, who now is still my friend and my attorney, uh, Barry Slotnick. I said, let Barry read the script. And whatever you don't like, he can dictate to them. And let's see if they make the change. And well, let's make the movie. He said, well, how do we make money? I said, I, if we let this film go and get the cooperation of all the neighborhoods and the unions, because they needed New York for the locations. Right. And they were already, every Italian-American wouldn't let them shoot on Mulberry Street. I mean, they were already getting resistance. I said, if you let that go, you're going to ask, and I will get you, all the world premieres in every major city. You could charge $100, $150 a ticket. Everybody will come. So he said, you think you could do that? I said, I didn't even ask yet until you gave me permission. So he said, go ahead, try to do it. And that's when I went to the Gulf and Western building, which is on Columbus Circle. It's still there. Now it's called Trump Tower. <laughs> and I was, in the, I was in the lobby, and I spoke to them. And then I negotiated the deal, and my reward was I play Michael, Sonia Carlo, because I had someone read me the book. And I figured I could play any one of these three people. And by that time, the only part that was available was Carlo. So I said to Joe, while we're all in the room yet, I said, I'm going to play Carlo. So he looked at them, Bobby, Bobby Evans and Stanley Jaffe, who was running Paramount at the time. He says, he's playing Carlo. They said, okay. <laughs> but that, and it's an incredibly important role. I mean, that he's... It, he... Oh, I know. It was crazy. But at the beginning, Marlon Brando, he was quite skeptical to having a non-actor playing such an important and big role. How did you change his mind? Well, you know, it was funny because we had the, uh, we would have our first table read. I didn't even know what that was. The only way I felt comfortable, Coppola, the, the director, decided to have it at Patsy's Restaurant up on 119th Street. And that was controlled by the Genovese family. And I used to go up there a lot and give overnight loans. You know, they needed 5000 2000 whatever. And I'd bring it up to them from, from Costello. And so I was very familiar with the place. So, and, and they were going to have the back room where normally at night there were all ziggurat games and crap games. But that don't go on during the day. So here we are. We walk in. They have this huge table with all kinds of Italian food on it. And Coppola's idea was that everybody introduced themselves. And we're just going to read the script to get familiar and all the non-Italians to should watch the Italians. And he asked the Italians, which me being one, to exaggerate our hand motions and all our mannerisms. So like James Kahn, who was Jewish and Marlon Brando, who was Polish, could take on being an Italian. Mm -hmm. So the first break. And they said on the bottom of the, on the call sheet that day, do not have eye contact or talk to Mr. Mullen Brando. I said, no problem. Now that we have our first break, he came over to me. 
And everybody's looking at me, you know, all the thespians, Pacino, all these guys <laughs> studied with Stella Adler and, and Lee Strasberg. So, and, and Brando came over to me and he says, you got a big movie coming out. I said, no, I don't. He says, uh, you're a TV actor. You got a TV show? I said, no. He says, uh, well, you're not on Broadway. I says, uh, what, where did he get that? He says, well, I know you're not on Broadway. Who'd you study with? I said, study what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and with this, he called Coppola over, the director. And I didn't know, you know, how important the role was. And he says, Francis, this guy is playing my son-in-law. And, and Francis didn't cast me. And he didn't know how I got there myself. But he was told <laughs> this guy's in the movie. So he said, I know. He said it very reluctantly. So I don't know protocol. And this guy starts to talk about how important I am. This guy's got to be a great actor. And you should rethink this or go back to the studio. And I'm saying to myself, this guy's trying to get me fired. Again, I, I don't know protocol. I dismissed the director. You can't do that. But I did. I said, Coppola, go over there a minute. And then I did another sacrilege. I put my arm around Brando and walked him out of earshot to the other actors and everything because I didn't want them to hear what I was going to tell them. <laughs> so as soon as I get him in the corner of a room, I get right to face to face. Our noses were almost touching. And I said, let me just tell you something, okay? You screwed us up for me and you get me fired. I'm going to suck on your heart. You will bleed out here today. Are you crazy? And he stepped back and he said, that was brilliant. You could do this part. He thought I was acting. I was telling the truth. I was going to kill him. <laughs> and then he like became your acting coach. Oh, yeah. Then, then he, I mean, every day he was enamored. I thought it was with me. I had a Chinese chick chauffeur at the time. I mean, these guys are coming up in station wagons. And I had a, a 65 Bentley that I stretched. I had my own limousine at that time. I was 25 years old. And, you know, I was making so much money. It was stupid. So he liked the chauffeur. And he asked if he could ride with me to work every day and all this. And I said, of course, because we had to go to Staten Island. What was the first shootings? Well, the, the wedding. And we were staying. I was staying at the, I, I have, I'm, the house I'm in right now. I was already involved with. It was one of Costello's gambling rooms. And uh, I'm still here now. I'm, I'm talking to you from there. Like, can you imagine? I came in when I was 12, and now I'm 77. I'm still in the same place. But I wanted to stay at the Park Lane, which is two blocks away. That's where all the actors were. And I wanted to walk out the door every morning because all the fans were there. I wanted to feel all of this. So I was staying there, and he was staying at the Elisai on 54th Street. So he asked if I could pick him up. And I did every day. I would have coffee for him. And he liked Covassier. He'd go to work. He was drunk already halfway driving to Staten Island. Wow. But I would be in his dressing room with him and Dick Smith, which it took them like two or three hours to do his makeup every day. And we'd go over my lines and I'd help him with his lines. And he basically showed me so many things as an actor. And uh, so I was very believable especially in the last scene when they hand me the ticket and I'm supposed to die. And obviously I knew I was, but that's what, was his, that's what he was afraid of. He said, you have to show the fear, but 
you don't know if you're really going to die, even though you read the script and you know you're going to die. But you're on a screen that's 36 feet wide, and they're a close-up of you. The audience is smarter than you. And he showed me how to redo that take every time, because most people don't know, you know, it's five or six takes to get what they want. And you have to get that emotion up each time. So he was the one that showed me when Michael hands you the airline ticket. Take a sneak look at it. Make him believe what you're thinking. Maybe I'm going to get away. Maybe I am going to Vegas. And that was all him. And how was Coppola as a director? Coppola left me alone. (laughs) (laughs) I just did what I did. He said nothing to me ever. (laughs) It was so funny because that question's been asked to me so many times. And uh, I mean, Francis, you know, it's funny. I knew his father, Carmine Coppola, because mm-hmm. my route was up on 52nd Street. And that's where, you know, Tuchor's was and the Musicians Union. And I knew everybody in the Musicians Union because I knew every union boss in the whole world. Petrillo was very close to Costello. So I used to see Carmine Coppola there a lot. And then when his son got the movie, I knew who the guy was right away, you know. So, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I, Francis said nothing to me at all, but it worked. But I, I helped him a lot, though, because when he needed an Italian band for the wedding, I, so I, 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 I had a Bouchard wedding. They made me get married to this girl. And I had this great band, Nino Morielli, and his orchestra. So I got them. Most of those people were friends of mine in the audience. They were all from Staten Island. They were all cousins and everybody else. So. And you were selling soda on the side and making business with at the at the filming, right? Well, that was my other little scheme because I saw, again, not being in the movie, they say, "Okay, roll them," and then everybody, all the, all the ads would grab all the soda cans and everything and throw them away, and then there was never enough stuff. So I called the union as an actor, not giving them my name. Say, I'm on the set. There's 700 extras. There's nothing to drink. They're, they're so inadequate. We go for hours of nothing to drink because they can't have the cans on there. And then they came up and then they came to me again and said, do you know anybody on Staten Island that we can get a lot of soda up here and people to serve it? I said, I'll take care of it. What's the budget? They gave me the budget. And I went to Staten Island Community College and got everybody in the drama class who wanted to be on the set to serve the drinks for nothing and I was buying the soda for like a dollar seventy a case, this shaft of cans. Mm-hmm. And I was selling, you know, thousand dollars, two thousand dollars worth of soda a day. That's how much stuff they were using. Well, my listeners really have to to go into because there's even more incredible details for for the filming of that that they they that we're not going to um, spoil here too much. But why did you bring a doctor to the premiere? <laughs> Well, I, I had this idea, and again, me being an egotist and I can afford uh, a lot of things. I said, you know, here it is, the world premiere of this movie, which was insane. The people was already like the book was in its sixth print. And they had this world premiere and they were televising live. Merv Griffin was had his show. And on the other side of the red carpet was Army Archer. I mean, we're all used to this red carpet now. That never was during those days. You know, they never televised an opening. So I'm saying to myself, 
all these great actors. I mean, and um, James Conn just had Brian Piccolo on television, and Jim. I mean, I looked at the old actors, you know, Sterling Hayden and Richard Conti and Marlon Brando. I knew they were going to get all the attention. So I came up with this idea because I had a big problem with the Colombo family because just before, about three or four months prior of the film wrapping, they had another rally in New York and Colombo was assassinated. And indirectly, they thought I had something to do with it because on the dais that day, I was supposed to sit. And when they did the investigation and saw all the stills of the crime scene, there was a chair that had my name on it. Oh, wow. Which mocked me for death and mocked me before questioning for the New York Police Department. So I figured, I'm going to use this. So the FBI came to me and they said, we have to tell you, which I didn't know that law either. They intercepted a phone call where... The mob is trying to have me killed. So they had to let me know. So I hired a marksman, a famous guy that I knew, and I wanted him to shoot me as I got out of the car. I had me on a rooftop across the street or something, and we talked about the detail. He mapped it out and all that. And he said to me, Johnny, I can't do this. He said, if you don't understand. Uh, uh, just a breeze could change the direction of the bullet." Instead of just wounding you like you want me to shoot you in the leg or the shoulder, this may go right through your heart and you'll be dead. I can't do it. And at the last minute, he backed out. Mm -hmm. So while I was planning the world premiere, my date was Dr. Theodore Jacobs, a doctor I knew. He was Elvis Presley's doctor. He and Elias Ghanem in Las Vegas at the time. And so I took him to the premiere because I figured if I got shot, at least I have a doctor there right away. But so in case it, something would happen to you. Yeah, in the 11th hour, they, they called it off on me. <laughs> but this picture opened a lot of doors for you in life. So, so, so you, oh my I God, mean, yeah. it was worth all this, this, the trouble that you went through to get in it. I mean, you've made a, tons of movies after that. And it was an iconic role in every way. But it also saved your life when you were actually... Um, is, when you were with Pablo Escobar. Can you tell me about that? Oh, my God. Yeah, well, after, after going much many years later, in the 80s, I opened, up, I, I, I opened up two big clubs. I opened a club called Tiffany's at the Tropicana Hotel, which I had Elvis Presley open for me. So that was an immediate success. And then I opened a supper club and gambling club in Las Vegas called State Street which I had Dee Martin, Sinatra, and Sammy Davis do all my commercials long before they did anybody's commercials. And I think that One of was the another. most iconic places <clears throat> in Las Vegas. Oh, my God, like. yeah. And they all hung there because I came up with the idea of serving gourmet dinner until 6 in the morning. And I got the idea because I used to go to every show. That's when they were doing two shows a night, one at 8 o'clock and one at midnight. So one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, there was no gourmet restaurants open only coffee shops. So I created the most elegant club, Russian service, white glove. T the dishes were finished table side till six in the morning. So this was an instant success and it attracted all walks of life. And one night, a guy who was Pablo Escobar's underboss came in and he's walking in, which was a, 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 
a common sight because it's a gaming town. He's walking in, giving people $100 bills and tips and all that for the best table. And he opens his check with a bottle of Cristal, a bottle of Louis XIII, two ounces of Beluga caviar. I'm in love with this guy. He, he's already <laughs> spent like $1,500 in the, in the club a half hour. He gets in a fight with his girlfriend. He breaks the Cristal bottle and sticks it in her face. I never seen anything like that in my life. Thank God he missed the eye. So I call from my bar, the front door. I said, we have a problem on seven. And I had all these football players from UNLV, one of them being Steve Sharippa from The Sopranos and now Blue Bloods. He's a big actor. And he's a big kid. And I, I get him on the phone. I said, get over there. He's I ain't going over there, boss. That guy's nuts. I said, well, thanks a lot. So now I get involved. So I go over and declare that I'm the owner. And if, I didn't know who, who he was with. I thought maybe it was some mob families. And I said, do you hear these sirens? They're coming for you. Now, if you don't get out of here, you're going to get arrested. Go. I got to get this girl to the hospital. I was only worried about the girl. I don't care what he, about why he did it. Get out of here. He said, no, man. I said, no, man. What the hell are you talking about? And I didn't realize he still had the bottle in his hand. And he goes to my juggler. Fortunately, I'm agile enough. I bend back. And he cuts me along my chin. Now, what my next statement is totally insane. I look down, and there's blood all over my shirt. So I said to him, look what you did to my shirt. I waited six months for these shirts. The Sea Island Cotton, are you crazy? Now, here's a guy just cut my, he thought he cut my throat. And he's looking at me saying, this guy's worried about his shirt. <laughs> but he gave me a chance to pull my gun, and I put it right to his forehead. I said, now, what do you want to do? You want to go out in a black bag or you want to go out that door? And he said, F you. I said, oh, really? So I put two right in his head, right between his eyes. And I'm looking at a hole in the man's head. Blood is running out of it. And he's still looking at me. And then finally, you know, he fell. But the guy was Pablo Escobar's underboss. So now I got to get this straightened out. Because I come home from the hospital and there's a Santeria in my living room. I live in a secured place, believe me. And I didn't even know what it was. The guy was a Marielito, and to avenge his brother's death, they have to kill me. But they're not going to kill me first. They're going to kill my family first. We had somebody come and let me know what this all means. So now I have to go to Bogota and straighten this out. I figured, hey, you want me? Come and kill me. I don't care. I have a few. My life is nuts, but you're not going to kill my kids. And I approached him, and the next thing you know, I'm in a torture chamber being, you know, tortured by him, his people, not him. And then I'm, I'm out of it. I'm in a daze, and there's a guy standing in front of me talking to me, and I'm sitting down in a chair, and I'm looking at his hands in front of me, and in one of his hands he has a book called The Making of the Godfather. And I hear this voice, and he says, why don't you tell me you were calling on the Godfather? He's clean him up and bring him up to the house. And the next thing you know, I'm having dinner with Pablo Escobar. And I told him my version of the story. And he said, don't worry, we'll handle it. We'll take care of it. He said, but will you do me a favor before you leave? I said, what do you want? I just, I just wanted to get out of there. He says, I want to do the closing scene of The Godfather. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm looking at this guy and saying, is he for real? And then I, then I started thinking, wait a minute. Maybe that's how he's going to kill me now. So we do the scene. I said, you want me to write the lines? He said, no, no, I know the lines. 
And he knew Michael's lines. And we, we, we played the scene where Michael said, Carlo, you got to answer for Santini. And, you know, and then he, he tells me the whole thing. Don't be afraid. You think I'm making your sister a widow and all that. I mean, it's crazy. So you're mirroring that you may be dying in this in the scene as you are in, in, in real life there with Pablo Escobar. Because I know how nuts he is. Then he walks me out to this car. It wasn't the same car. It was a vintage car. And I get in the car, and there's a guy in the back seat. And he op- and Pablo Escobar opens the front door, and I sit in the seat, and the guy in the back says, hello, Carlo. And they all bust out laughing. I'm saying to myself, what the hell's going on here? And then he said, don't worry, get out of here. Have a good time. We'll straighten this out for you. And, and I mean, <laughs> that's how crazy my life is. But I have to ask you, I mean, you must have been... In the U.S., you must have been, were you charged for this? Well, no, I wasn't charged for the, because, see, one thing I've learned from the best, always make sure it's self-defense. So he cut my throat. 150 people saw that. So it was self-defense, and I was saving a lady's life. In fact, I turned it around. I, I ran a big campaign so that people didn't think what you just thought. Right. And... Laura Manis, who was stabbed that night, she spoke to the news, Entertainment Tonight, every show there was, of how I saved her life from this maniac drug dealer. And the DEA finally gave me a dinner. They named December 12th as Johnny Russo Day in America for coming to the rescue of a lady in need. (laughs) But tell me, why do you think that um, wise guys and 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 but are are so popular in film. I was I just saw The Irishman as well, and and I mean these movies are still iconic, and it's still sort of a, a culture, if you will, that people are in. And and you've done them all. You've been not only in in Godfather, but in in, in many movies afterwards. What what do you think? What do you think people, you know, still want to see this? And what is the allure? Well, it's uh, to me, you know, and, and I, I've said this numerous times. The, uh, the, uh, the illusion and allure, even to women, they're, 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 gangster is very sexy. It's uh, James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart. Go back in time, look at these guys. They all made careers playing gangsters. People love that lifestyle. I don't know. I mean, now, I mean, people think I'm a gangster, and I'm not. I, I tell them, wait a minute, I'm not a gangster. But I, they, they know I, uh, how my lifestyle is, and, and my friends, and... Maybe they're not used to people wearing 14 karat pinky rings and, you know, Brioni suits all the time, but that's what I do. <laughs> and this book has been optioned, right? It's going to be a movie. And not only has it been optioned, but it's been optioned by the best. Colin Wilson of Avatar fame and so many other movies. He's executive producer. And Nick Vallelongo, who won the Oscar, two Oscars last year, they took it. They're, they're doing a 10-hour miniseries because they feel my life can't be done in 10 hours. And now they were going for another 20 hours. I spoke to them yesterday. They're thinking it needs 20 hours. I can attest to that because we've, uh, we've been talking for 45 minutes now, and we haven't even scratched the surface of the stories in your book. So I'm, I understand them completely. No, even something better happened in my life now. About two weeks ago, a friend of mine called Tom Cantone, who I met in the 90s, who basically booked me, this is part of American trivia, booked me in the Trump Marina Hotel. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump opened this hotel, 
and they made me a headliner. And I thought it was a joke, so I kept asking for billboards on the way down. I wanted the use of a helicopter in Atlantic City every day, and they owned the Plaza Hotel, and that's Ivana Trump and Donald Trump. And now he's the president of the United States. Tom Cantone, who's now running all the Mohegan Sun casinos, all eight of them, just hired me to do a one-man play about the book. And a ridiculous amount of money. And so I'm, I'm writing that right now, and I'm going through the archives. And you know some of the highlights. I was able, because you didn't touch on Marilyn Monroe, I was able to get footage of Marilyn Monroe singing I Want to Be Loved by You, the title song for Some Like It Hot, when I was 16. I got vintage film of Sinatra at the Copa when I meet him in the Copa when I'm 14. So not only is it me telling the stories, I'm going to take you chronologically on film as a backdrop. So I'm making this production out of this. It's like insanity. When can we see this? I, my first show I do in, in Canada on, on March 7th at the uh, Falls View Casino, which is a Mohegan Sun Casino. I'm doing that that Saturday night, and then I'll be going through the, the, United, the United States. Wow. I'll probably come to Europe with him because uh, a very close friend of mine, Tommy Toon, you may know him, he's, he's won 10 uh, Tony Awards for Broadway, and I'm having Thanksgiving dinner with him to convince him to produce this as a Broadway play. Because this year, as crazy as I am, I'm going to go for an Oscar for Hollywood Godfather. It's going on television. I'm going to go for an Emmy and a Golden Globe Award for Hollywood Godfather. And now I want to get a Tony in 2021 on Broadway for Hollywood Godfather. Yeah. Watch have me have an do EGOT, it. yeah, as it's called, the <laughs> EGOT, yeah. And, and just so for the listeners, um, we didn't touch on Marilyn, but that's also an incredible story. You were actually in a relationship with Marilyn Monroe when you were a teenager, and then you guys used to take long walks in Central Park and just talk about everything except her career because she needed someone to talk to. Well, I was, I was with her the last four years of her life, and it was the most incredible time. And I, I remember her calling me, 1961, she, she, she only had a year left of life. We know that now, but I didn't then. And I used to go pick her up and she'd have a disguise on because everybody knew Marilyn Monroe, but I had that kind of relationship with her early on because we were just two 12 year olds wanting a hug. She, she was in an orphanage. Most people didn't know that, you know, she was at Warner studios in the Valley looking out the window and saying, someday I'll be at that studio like I was looking at the Empire State Building, saying someday I'm going to get out of here and I'll be uptown. And that was our parallel. And she just finished The Misfits with Clark Gable, one of the greatest American actors ever. And two days after they wrapped the film, he died. And she was hysterical. And I didn't know why. Maybe just the guy died. The world knew he died. It was all over the radio. But I didn't know... They were having a mad, passionate affair going on. And she felt, being that they made love two or three times a day, she killed him. And I think she did. I think she did. The guy was an old man by then. 
so she would tell you these things. <laughs> oh my God! We, I mean, I, I nursed her for days trying to convince her. You know, no, but I mean, she was such a great person, and not the not the person anybody knew. She was like a little girl in this sexy woman's body. Well, Mr. Russo, there's so many things we could go. I'm so happy. We're looking forward to seeing this. Well, first of all, everyone has to read the book for all the other um, the other stories and then seeing it on television and then your show and, and everything you're doing and, and the incredible life that you have, have led. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me about it. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And hello, Stockholm. I love it. <laughs> thank you so much to Gianni Russo Hollywood Godfather My Life in the Movies and in the Mob is available now and Mr. Russo also has a podcast that he does together with co-author Patrick Picciarelli that's also called Hollywood Godfather Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate the show. It really helps others to find us. This episode was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.